continue, and we, and we can keep doing these, uh, and, and we did today do another large increase as we approach the level that we think we need to get to. And we're still discovering what that level is. Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. Just heard from the Bank of England just now, uh, Jane, with uh, a rather extraordinary statement saying that they are planning a guilt market operation, uh, which is an intervention from uh, the Bank of England. Uh, They restore orderly market conditions. We're going to be real tough guys until we crush the economy. Poor monetary policy would be an understatement. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability. This is the Fed has just been relentless in a toxic rhetoric. After the progress we've made over the past few months, I am more optimistic about the course of our economy than I have been for quite a while, and I know we're headed in the right direction. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. This is Todd Zempel. Today on the show, we have James Abate. James is CIO and Portfolio Manager for Center Funds. Now, James has been on the podcast multiple times in the past. We really value his opinion, not just on what's going on from the macro, the top down in the economy, but also from the bottom up, what's going on with a lot of the companies out there, because after all, they make up the economy and the stock market. So that said, Joe, I'm going to pass it off to you to get the conversation started. Okay, so let's let's get going here today. It's uh, the first business day of October. And uh, we just finished another lousy quarter. I'm sure the GDP is going to be negative for the third straight quarter. And uh, there'll still be deniers. We're in a recession. But on that pleasant note, James, why don't you update us on uh, the funds performance year to date and the asset allocation rotations that you may be making or may have made uh, in Q3 so we get a sense of your positioning? Well, thank you. Um, The uh, fund itself, uh, DHANX, the Center of American Select Equity Fund Institutional Class, through 930 year to date is down 8.2%. And that's relative to the S&P 500 total return, which is down uh, close to 24% over that period of time. If you look at the most recent month, the fund actually uh, was able to you know, weather the storm a little bit better than the market's nine plus percent decline by being down by 7.7%. Clearly, one of the big things that happened during the quarter was the fact that um, energy stocks had no longer been the um, outperforming or kind of port in the storm that um, they were in the first first quarter and second quarter of 2022. In fact, it's the first quarter of the year where we've seen energy stocks as measured by the XLE underperform the market down by 9.6%. Now, the reason why the fund has actually held up well is that the things that we've done over the course of the past three or four months has been 
to recognize that um, the uh, positions that we had within the energy sector, and it's concentrated in the major integrated stocks like ExxonMobil, Chevron, and some of the natural gas players like uh, EQT and Range Resources. We had been taking some profits in names like APA Corp um, and some others and just trimming back in general. We also uh, took the opportunity during the quarter to trim back and become more discerning within the basic material space because that area also had been a safe haven in the beginning part of the year, particularly around the uh, invasion of Ukraine. But I think as we progressed during the quarter, and we're starting to see it more evident now, is that one cannot just buy agricultural related uh, companies like CF Industries, Mosaic, uh, Corteva and others, you need to obviously now be much more cognizant of the underlying drivers. For example, within the fertilizer stocks, uh, we remain very bullish on nitrogen. So have essentially maintained our position in CF industries. We're less, um, you know, bullish on the outlook for potash and phosphates. So took our profits in Mosaic MOS during the quarter. And I think the real key that, you know, when you step back and look at where we are from an overall perspective, I think you have to go back to the, the basics in terms of, you know, what drives every single stock within the portfolio. And the key for us is to, is to never venture too far away from our foundation that you always have to recognize that within the portfolio, every stock is going to be driven by market risk, sector risk, and then company specific or idiosyncratic risk. And on that note, one of the things that we've been doing over the course of the uh, last three or four months in terms of the use of funds that we've done from trimming back in some of the energy and material stocks is to raise our profile in, um, you know, you can consider them more idiosyncratic, but also stable growth. That is, we've um, initiated positions and raised our, our exposure in in the healthcare sector, most notably within uh, biotechnology, um, names like Gilead, Amgen, uh, Biogen, um, you know, those are the names that we've been adding to and, and, and we're be and benefited greatly from very positive news uh, that uh, came out of the latest Alzheimer's drug with Biogen in the last week or so. So we think that the portfolio itself, as it's positioned now, has become um, a little bit more balanced in the sense that the uh, the emphasis towards more stable growth stocks to uh, complement the resources bias in energy, which is more gassy based and materials, which is almost exclusively agricultural based is still the proper portfolio, as well as, um, you know, maintaining a uh, an overlay of uh, protective put options on the portfolio to buttress us against the continuing kind of, kind of trap door environment that we're in. Now, speaking of a trap door environment, can you give us some insight as to how you view things from a macro perspective at this juncture? Well, it's clear that we're seeing um, a continuing deceleration of the economy. Um, we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth, albeit quite modest negative. I think the ISM index, the manufacturing index, which is probably the most important economic indicator 
at least as it relates to S&P 500 profits, as well as price movements of the S&P 500. The most recent reading, which came out today, uh, was 50.9. And as you're aware of, it's a diffusion index. So a reading above 50 means the economy is growing. A reading below 50 means the economy is actually in contraction. Um, you know, that being said, the, the reading is getting very close to being uh, and, and, and decelerating very rapidly from its, uh, you know, its prior peak near 65 uh, back in uh, the summer and spring of 2021. It, all indications are when you look at some of the leading indicators like ECRI, um, and uh, other variables that basically give some degree of indication is that uh, the economy is headed lower further. Um, clearly, the impact from um, the blunt instrument of rising interest rates, which is just now being fed through to um, higher mortgage rates and consumer behavior, as well as its impact on, on balance sheets. And it, we can talk about the systemic risk coming about from government balance sheets, as we saw in the UK last Last week, but we're starting to see a further contraction. Now, this is going to have kind of a, a lopsided or, or let's call it a, a unique effect on the economy with regard to inflation, because what the Fed is trying to do is is to bring back some degree of price stability because they've let it get out of control with their modern monetary theory adoption over the last few years. What I mean by that specifically is that one of the one of the things that's going to come back to bite the Fed is that not only do interest rate increases suppress demand, but they also suppress supply. And to the extent that you look at some of the material sectors and energy sectors uh, or industries within the sector, um, it's crystal clear to us that what we're seeing is, you know, many of these um, energy companies have recalibrated their business models, you know, to prioritize free cash flow and debt reduction. And to the extent that, uh, you know, this this long-term underinvestment in hydrocarbon exploration that's been evident since 2014, 2015, has now essentially been, um, you know, extended, I would argue, because of the uncertainty with regard to a global recession. And, um, you know, in essence, the supply problem might be just getting worse. So it's it, you cannot rule out the fact that we're going to essentially stay within a stagflationary environment because the basic goods of energy, food, and other things that people need to live, tangible things, are are still going to be in a um, you know a unbalanced supply and demand dynamic. And uh, the Fed may just crush the consumer, bring about some demand destruction for these things. But necessities of life are likely to stay elevated in terms of price for the foreseeable future. And it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, the various central banks around the world, most notably the Fed, are going to deal with what we think is going to be a perpetually higher inflationary environment. Yes, yeah, so James, on that note, um, can you comment on the positioning of uh, any put options or other options just on the portfolio in general? What, what are your thoughts there right now? Yeah, so one of the things that we've always used as a backdrop is that um, even when looking at the analog of the bear market that followed the dot-com crisis, 
in 2000, 2001, 2002, is that you had rallies during that period of time. And the best guidepost of, 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 of when a rally occurred is that the VIX, the volatility index, actually went below 20 on three separate occasions, all while the market stayed in a nearly three-year bear market trend. You had, um, you know, the VIX give you an opportunity in the fall of 2000, the summer of 2001, and then again in the spring of 2002. And we've used that as a guidepost for us, meaning specifically in terms of the, what we've been doing in the fund is that following the rally that markets had during the um, summer, when the VIX actually did go below 20, one of the things that we did do was basically uh, re-engage and put uh, S&P 500 puts on the portfolio back on in mid-August when we got a, a brief period of time, it was about a week, where the VIX went below 20. So we put on a uh, a 95% notional value of the underlying positions hedge of the portfolio on S&P 500 puts on a tail position. And um, we think that the opportunity will be here uh, to, in, in essence, you know, protect the portfolio. We haven't taken the put off. Uh, we think that, uh, you know, we're going to see higher readings of volatility as many of the issues not just related to the economy or interest rates, but geopolitically um, will play themselves out. So to the extent where we get an opportunity where the VIX goes over 35 or maybe even 40, um, you know, to the extent we can take profits, because we don't think we're going into a, uh, you know, a cataclysmic uh, environment that's a, that's a very sharp, you know, very concentrated environment like the crash of 87 or the um, you know COVID crisis, we continue to think that we're in a, a bear market environment that's going to take a, a period of time. And let's not forget the, the bear market that followed the dot-com bust lasted almost three years. You know, we're only in a period of time where you can say that the bear market started about nine months ago. So, you know, it's tough for us to think that um, you know, the most overvalued market with the with the uh, most with the most unprecedented misallocation of capital investment over the past decade is just simply going to end in a whimper. We think this is going to be a much more uh, painful and derating and elongated event uh, for investors, unfortunately, until we reach a bottom on on, on stock prices. So with that, um, it's interesting, uh, uh, your history going back to the 2000-2002 level, clearly in March of 2000, the poster child of the top was Cisco being on the cover of Barron's at, at trading at 200 times earnings. So when you look at the market uh, place today for buying uh, securities so, uh, or do security selection, you, know, you, you really have valuations that have already come way, way down. Uh, and, and especially the stay-at-home stocks of the pandemic in 2020, but also uh, on a valuation basis on big tech, the FANG names. Uh, I think uh, Facebook Meta is down about 70% uh, from peak to trough uh, last week or approaching that number. So so what, what kind of floor do you look at uh, when the macro environment seems so unfavorable. And, and one last anecdotal uh, question is it almost seems like you're saying the modern, modern monetary theory experiment of Bernanke at all 
has turned out into a massive failure and misallocation of capital. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Well, why don't we address that first? Because, you know, it's not just evident here in the United States. Um, it has real ramifications um, in, in, in every area of the world. In the UK last year, last week, we saw the guilt market just almost blow up. Um, we really almost had a kind of October 87 event in the bond market last week in the UK. And what people don't understand <clears throat> is that, you know, the commentary that you read about in the paper is kind of simplistic in the sense that, um, you know, the currency fell, long-term guilt went up and there was a problem with some of the pensions and oh yeah, that's why the government had to intervene and reintroduce you know quote unquote on a temporary basis um you know buying back buying bonds so they reintroduced QE about you know a minute and a half after they said they were going to be you know tightening and what what people missed and the story behind that is that the pension plans in the UK were grossly underfunded, it will significantly underfunded. So in order to basically meet their pension liabilities, many of the plans had to lever up their assets, lever up their balance sheets. Now you saw CalPERS announced they were doing that in the beginning of the year. And I think whenever we, we know the bottom of the bear, we know the bottom of the bear market will happen when CalPERS increases its cash allocation, but that's a separate issue altogether. But back to the UK, what ends up happening is that I guess people never, you know, if they think the world started three years ago or nobody ever re remembered what happened in the, you know, crash of 1987. So instead of the equity market um, with portfolio insurance, all of the pension plan asset managers, they seem to be doing this uniformly, were utilizing put option replication, meaning that as bonds sold off in terms of price, it forced them to go to the market and liquidate their bonds. And because the balance sheets were levered up to basically allow the very low interest rate earning assets to basically generate a rate of return that would match the liabilities, which were much more significantly uh, large in terms of just notional values. So you had a leverage with put option replication laid on top of the assets. When the assets started to have kind of a parabolic move in terms of price, it forced more selling, which forced everybody to do the exact same thing. I mean, it's like people never, you know, read a, a book about what happened during the crash of 1987, you know, in terms of the pension asset managers in the UK. And for some reason, people now think put option replication is, is, a, is a good strategy. Um, and, you know, this really highlights a very important point in the sense that we really don't know how much leverage is actually in the system because most of these figures aren't reported. And these things only come up when a corpse comes floating to the top of the surface of the lake. Um, so I'm very worried that we, having ha having had these kind of the, the slope of the moves and rates all over with currency markets basically doing the same kind of um, very high sloping movements, you know, something's going to blow up basically that, you know, might give us an event that, uh, you know, the, the monetary authorities just can't arrest. So, but shifting gears back to the, the first part of your question, Joe, in, in terms of the, the FANG stocks and, you know, Meta and the others, the big difference now is that 
unlike what happened during the COVID crisis, where these companies got marked up in terms of PE multiples that were, you know, just absolutely, you know, astounding, is that at that point in time, however astounding they were, it was well-deserved, meaning that these companies like Alphabet and, and Apple and Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, were almost immune and the resilience that they've showed during the COVID crisis. And let's not just talk about kind of, you know, how good they were in terms of what they do, but just looking at the fundamentals, the rate of change of sales growth, um, profit margin improvements, return on capital improvement, asset efficiency improvements. Those things were the fundamental drivers that allowed these stocks to get re-rated to levels that were unprecedented. Now, what's happening today and why are they derating? Yes, they reached excessive levels of valuation and now they're derating to, you know, quote unquote, more normalized levels, but they're nowhere clear, nowhere close to where their valuation levels reached when in other points in time over the last couple of decades, when the rate of change in sales growth turned negative, not not that sales growth turned negative, but the rate of change. These stocks always trade uh, with a higher relationship to the to the first derivative, and it's the rate of change. And profit margin momentum um, is actually turning negative on a lot of these stocks. And Facebook, you know, if you just look at essentially its um, net profit margin on a tr on a trailing twelve month basis, you know, it's essentially gone from you know the the, the mid thirties, almost high you know low forties, down to twenty eight percent. So because of the reinvestment that they're having to make in the business to reinvent themselves away from their core business to the metaverse or whatever the hell, <laughs> whatever that is, basically. Um, you know, so the, this is a, it's a fundamental change in these companies. But the, the point is from a portfolio construction basis, they're still too big to ignore to a certain degree, but they don't deserve, in my opinion, any kind of active weight exposure like they did during the uh, 2018 through 2021 type of environment when growth was sparse around the market and rates were very, very kept very, very low so that these stocks could be re-rated positively without, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, chinks in their armor. So do you think that uh, is it? And again, this is asking a personal view when you sit back and look at the macro uh, impact of what the Fed is doing, and then a lot of the uh, countries around the world trying to follow that and tighten as well. Do you look at this in the sense of thinking they're trying to, uh, you know, we we talk about the term creative destruction, and I I look at this uh, like Powell and company are leading a creative destruction of wealth never seen in our history globally because if they continue to do what they claim they're going to do. Uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people saying the S&P is going to touch 3000. Uh, David Rosenberg even threw the outer limit last week at 2750, I think. Uh, so do you, do you see the Fed ever looking at uh, uh, anything other than a lagging indicator to catch up and actually say, uh, oh, I think we've we've gone too far. We crash landed the economy. You know. I think they're going to the event that would make the Fed pivot at this point in time is um, probably something that's going to happen internationally because of the uh, impact that 
rate increases are having on the dollar. And you see it in the Japanese yen, you see it with the euro, you see it with sterling, you see it with the Chinese yuan. Um, it's only going to be an event, I think, in the short term that would cause a pivot that uh, has its origins with some kind of foreign currency crisis or whatever that uh, results in the Fed trying to pause. If I look at just what's happening from a domestic perspective, I mean, you look at stock prices and you look at where we are from an economic perspective, you can make the argument because of the lag time that Fed policy has on the economy. And you can look at it from, you know, both GDP and the ISM index and others. I think the Fed is probably going to continue to move rates higher in an effort to, as you say, you know, create. Um, you know, demand destruction. And if there's any indicator that you want to look at is that the Fed, you know, the, the market is, is kind of giving you an indication of where the Fed is going to end up. And uh, right now, the one-year treasury note is right around 4%. That's probably where the Fed funds is going to end up. Um, you're going to have an inverted curve, which is going to be disastrous for the financial sector. So we're, we're most likely going to have some type of, of impact with regard to the banking sector, which remains a very poor investment area um, in the market. Um, housing is going to be crushed. Um, uh, you know, the problem is going to be, as, as I pointed out before, is that this does nothing to remedy supply. And, you know, what happens, you know, the, the million dollar question is going to be when the Fed gets to 4%, the curves are inverted. You start to have, you know, higher volatility and potentially a crisis overseas in one of the major uh, tra friendly trading countries currency. When they end up at 4% on the Fed funds rate and inflation doesn't come down, uh, you know, below 5% or something like that, you know, what does the Fed do? And more importantly, you know, what happens to Congress when, you know, right now interest costs are, you know, roughly, you know, 15 to, you know, on their way to 20 percent of uh, discretionary spending for the entire federal government. You basically quadruple interest rates because of the, the Treasury has been borrowing at uh, very low rates. I think the average maturity has been 5 percent. So, you know, if you look at five year Treasury notes, they've gone from basically uh, a yield of about 0.6 or 0.7 up to, you know, near, you know, three and a half percent. So you're talking about interest expense becoming a much, much larger of the federal budget. So the Democrats are not going to be in a position to want to cut back on social spending. The Republicans most definitely aren't going to want to cut back on any kind of defense or, you know, other priorities that they have. So we're going to reach a point where, you know, will the Fed, you know, collapse under the political pressure to take its inflation targets higher? And then we as investors need to think about what does that do to, you know, markets? And, you know, as we've laid it out, you know, over a couple of years ago, is that we think that we were in an environment where, you know, inflation stays elevated. 
organic growth because of essentially, you know, what's happening in the in the overall economy means that you want to, uh, you know, find companies that have a very idiosyncratic or or um, a, a very resilient business model against economic cyclicality. But, you know, to the extent where price remains still a dominant variable to allow companies to generate higher sales growth, if you can find companies that can price their products higher, like materials, like energy um, and others, that maintain asset efficiency um, and find companies that can pay, you know, very stable and high dividend yields. Um, you know, those are the companies that, you know, are, are I think are going to be the ones that are let, more resilient to what is likely to be a, a continuing difficult stock market. So with that said, then, is it fair to say that there's a premium on companies that have great balance sheets that are, have a lot high free cash flow and are paying down debt or paying variable dividends and returning uh, share, returning to share buybacks? I guess one, one side question on the buyback issue, is it your view that many companies are even blinking about this issue? There's a 1% federal tax beginning in 2023 on buybacks? Well, the buyback, the tax is only applicable on shares bought back net of issuance for options and uh, insiders, basically. So it's a real, it's, it's, it, they missed the opportunity because the vast majority of stock buybacks are nothing more than a stealth wealth transfer from shareholders to corporate management. I mean, to the extent that, you know, the CEOs of, uh, you know, some of the major banking houses, you know, walk away as billionaires when they created nothing, but are nothing but stewards of the business uh, that they inherited and uh, have managed for a few years. It's just, it's, it's criminal in my opinion. Um, you know, to the extent that you actually have companies that are desiring to return money back to shareholders, I think the figure that you're going to see that's much more important is the dividend yield. So, when companies tend to face economic distress or the economy has a undue influence on boards in terms of the authorization of share repurchases, we are placing much more reliance upon the dividend yield rather than the combined yield of stock buybacks and dividends, which I always feel is a false indication of comfort. Because if you look at most companies, when they have um, some degree or perceived distress and 2008 was a great example, you know, stock buybacks uh, aside from uh, issuance to executives nearly came to a halt in the S and P 500 and where companies have now levered back up and the cost of financing is going up. I think uh, buybacks are going to be less of an issue. So our, 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 our preferences on debt paybacks and uh, high and sustainable dividends. And to the extent we've seen companies increase dividends, um, you know, particularly in the energy space uh, and revamp their entire cash flow spend models away from CapEx. Um, you know, we're very, very much uh, attracted to that. And, you know, you're also starting to, you know, there's other opportunities. I mean, stocks that are seeing, you know, new purchases that we've made within the fund, um, you know, more speculative, but, you know, Altria, uh, which is the, um, you know, cigarette manufacturer here in the U.S., which, you know, has gone through a very 
tumultuous time with the poor purchase of Jewel a few years ago. And I know, Joe, you've been on top of that very, very closely. Uh, Vernado real estate here in New York, which now reaching a, a high on, on yield. Um, obviously, it's about a smaller position size because of the inherent cyclicality in the in the commercial business. But but the yield there seems um, payable and uh, is uh, very attractive at this point in time. So I think dividend yield is going to be a uh, increasing area of emphasis from a factor standpoint that investors will gravitate towards. And um, at least as a as a, as a, as a somewhat of a safe harbor here in a, in a very volatile environment. So do you think, is it your, your view uh, on the, on the positions you own in metals and miners or miners in particular, uh, clearly we've got inflation, which is when they're supposed to perform, but clearly we have a strong dollar. So are you thinking there's going to be a whipsaw effect on the, the, uh, the mining securities in the portfolio uh, once the fed stops raising and, and things roll over a little bit? Yeah, I, I, that's exactly what we think. But getting the timing right is is very difficult. And I'll be the first one to admit, I thought the Fed would be pivoting after September. I thought that they would cave to the political pressures of uh, both the budgetary concerns in terms of a higher debt service burden, as well as the impact that this would have on um, democratic priorities uh, in, of, of economic growth. And I've been wrong about that. And um so within the metals, uh, within the material space, I mean, one thing that we had did do and, you know, the major areas that we actually uh, took profits out of um, were in uh, the, the base metals and uh, industrial metals. So iron ore like BHP, we sold uh, tech, the copper producer. Um, and 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 nickel producer and and, and zinc. So we t- we took our profits out of that, um, and have really the only emphasis that we have within the metal space right now is in gold. Um, and uh, we recently purchased Newmont. That's a dividend payer, you know, above five percent right now, which hasn't seen a yield like that you know, since uh, 2014, which uh, last time was a pretty good attractive entry point for the stock. Um, at some point. We're going to get a, when we do get the pivot. Um, I think that the best performing asset class actually will be precious metals. Now, that being said, I think the biggest mistake that people are anticipating right now, and if using the analog of 2000, 2002 as, as my as my guiding post, um, the market is not going to bottom on the pivot. Markets, because remember, the market's going to be driven by. Uh, rates and by, you know, growth of earnings. And if we're in a genuine recession that causes the Fed to pivot, the the deceleration of growth and earnings or negative earnings growth, actually, um, is going to overwhelm uh, investor perception, meaning that the E uh, in any kind of price to earnings analysis is going to basically start to shrink. So even though the Fed will pivot and people will perceive you know, rates have, have been uh, peaking and coming down, being a, a historical boost to uh, to multiples. What's going to end up happening is that if we're genuinely in a recession and economic distress is evident, and that's the catalyst that causes the pivot, the 
decline in earnings and the rise in risk premiums that people will demand because of the uncertain economic activity will, in essence, actually see the market continue to fall during that period of time. The market's only going to bottom, in my opinion, well after the Fed has pivoted. And we start to see the benefits of any kind of restructuring that's going on within corporate America, in essence, to make themselves much more efficient and asset efficiency. So the one thing I always want to say is, you know, it's it's never a good idea to be really bearish on America all the time because people like they did in 2009, people underestimate how quick and how efficacious most companies are, particularly S&P 500 companies are in kind of right sizing themselves in terms of uh, uh, all resources, whether that's labor, assets, uh, equipment across the board. So that's going to be the trigger for us to basically say all's clear and really take on a much more aggressive, unhedged type of posture within the portfolio, not just the pivot in rates, but also when we see the efficacy of uh, a lot of the restructuring activities, what we call wise contraction, be a, a relatively homogenous and exceptionally widespread event within corporate America. And, and I'll tell you, at that point in time, though the FANG stocks are not the ones you're going to want to gravitate towards. You're going to want to gravitate uh, toward a much higher degree of cyclicality. And leadership in, in new bull markets has almost never been the same leadership that existed in the prior bull market. Well, that's very true. And, you know, to uh, complement your, your view on that, one of the things that Glenn and I and Z have been talking about, there's so much out there about that uh, stocks have not gotten re-rated for lower earnings, uh, that a lot of companies have yet to guide down. And, and a lot of them are saying that they can't really, they're going to quit giving guidance because they can't see what's in front of their nose. But, uh, you know, with that said, David Rosenberg uh, cited in the last, uh, probably the last three three weeks or so, uh, that historically since World War II, I think it was his comment that markets don't bottom until the last Fed rate cut, not rate hike. And so, and uh, then a number of people that uh, beyond value, whatever the 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 uh, meeting was last week in New York with all the big hedge fund billionaires speaking, uh, were talking about, uh, you know, that the, they, I think uncertainty that nobody had any real poignant view either way directionally but a couple did mention the fact that stocks haven't re-rated for lower earnings. Any comment there? No, I, I agree. I agree hundred percent on that. And I, I think um, the problem with, um, you know, with most analysis right now is it's, it's, it's looking at price relative to price. And um, you know, just if the, the problem with most macro allocators um, is that the, the macro data is going to be behind uh, well behind, probably two quarters at least of um, the turn that we're going to start to see uh, eventually. And we're not we're not even close to that right now. But, you know, when companies start to basically take the uh, or start to see the uh, the efficacy of um, a lot of the restructuring efforts that they undertake. And it's, you know, as you point out, there's going to be this process and it doesn't happen quickly. Usually, you know, when companies start to, you know, don't give guidance, miss guidance, um, you know, really blow up in that regard. We've seen in some of the semiconductor stocks and other places just yet. 
those are the canaries in the coal mine. When it starts to become much more widespread, that'll be an indication. And then, um, you know, it's when people kind of give up, uh, you know, and I've got great respect for David Rosenberg, but, you know, he kind of missed the bottom uh, and never turned bullish. You know, when market hit the the satanic 666, you know, back in uh, the, uh, you know, March, March 2009. Exactly. I mean, um, not to blow my own horn, but, you know, one of the things that we said, we said that the market would be up you know, uh, at least 20% on by the end of the year. And and at that point in time, the market was down 20% by that point in time. And people thought I was, you know, was, was, uh, it was kidding. And I wasn't, and it wasn't because, you know, the ISM index had started to turn up or GDP had started to get better or whatever. And then does that, it was basically that you had companies, you know, like Starbucks who, um, you know, if you look at, you know, their history and they were kind of the poster child because they had overbuilt, you know, aggressively their, their asset growth going into the financial crisis in 08 um, was, uh, you know, asset growth was in excess of 10% every year since they had been, you know, a publicly traded company. And, um, you know, the, the problem was, the you know that nine dollar frappuccino wasn't exactly a, 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 a an easy purchase when you just lost your job, uh, you know across the board, and you know you combined a excessive asset base with uh, declining demand. It wasn't a, a coincidence that you saw for the first time this company see a very sustained and persistent decline in their profit margins, asset efficiency, returns on capital. Um, and you know the thing that you saw though at the same time was that there was an awakening that, uh, you know, they needed to essentially, you know, shrink their capital spending. So you just look at some, you know, simple variables, their CapEx relative to sales had always been around, you know, 10%, you know, heading into the recession. And, you know, by, by uh, 2008, 2009, they had shrunk that down to, you know, less than 4%, basically. So, you know, they have, you're taking uh you know, instead of taking 90% of their cash flow to grow store base, they were taking only 25% of it. And they right-sized and closed a lot of stores. They finally, you know, they, in essence, started to see improvements in margins. Obviously, as demand uh, for for basic things that they offer, like coffee and, and food products, you know, started to stabilize. When you combine that with asset efficiency, you started to see this company, uh, you know, reaccelerate on its margins and asset efficiency. And it's not a coincidence that the stock price that I think fell from, you know, a, a high of uh, probably around 40, I think it was back then, um, you know, or maybe on a split adjusted basis around 20 down to a low of about four bucks, you know, started to move higher. And, you know, the stock price, you know, is, is $85 now after reaching a peak of, you know, well over 120, uh, you know, last year. So, don't underestimate. Those are the kinds of things that you're going to start to see bottom up. And those are going to be the indications and uh, to basically get bullish. But, you know, we're not, we're not close yet there. We're not, we're not, th- we're not at a point in time where, you know, we've seen capitulation from a macro perspective um, and the company's starting to put up kind of all the, the, uh, the evidence of some degree of, 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 of sowing the seeds of their turnarounds. And that's just not evident yet. We're still in the process of heading into, I think, the deeper part of, of a recession and the timing or the, or the length of the recession is still uncertain. 
With that said, um, what is your view in running the fund on raising cash? What what is what would be a a a, a top level? Uh, is it in the fund uh, investment policy of how much cash you can actually hold? Uh, uh, per prospectus rules, we can go to all cash. Um, okay. My view is that uh, we, we're an equity fund. Um, you know, we let smarter guys like you who make the asset allocation decisions determine, um, you know, what kind of allocation to cash you want to have in your diversified portfolio. And the reality is, as we saw in the summer, you know, like we're seeing rally today, um, you know, you want to stay fully invested all the time um, because the real issue is that with regard to cash for it to genuinely have any kind of meaningful impact on the overall portfolio is you have to raise cash to well in excess of 50%. Otherwise it's not really going to do very much in terms of the beta that you have within the fund um, and, and what it can do. Uh, that's why our preference is to always maintain a fully invested posture and then tactically use options to protect against the drawdown. But then also, you know, one of the things that we always do and you're well aware of is uh, have a very high cognizance of, of risk in terms of portfolio construction, position sizing, you know, always being aware of the volatility contribution that each stock is bringing to the portfolio on an individual basis, as well as within a diversified portfolio, and then manage it in that regard. So to the extent that we pick up alpha on a relative basis on the downside, it's going to be through stock selection that always goes into a position trying to identify asymmetry in terms of opportunity using both the prospects for fundamental improvement as well as valuation, recognizing the contribution of volatility so that we can size the individual positions. And then on the totality of the portfolio is to, in essence, tactically use hedges and other capital protective strategies when we think that market related or systemic risk is, is, is not going to be our friend. Yeah. So on that note, uh, mentioning uh, securities position, I noticed you have a top 10 position in Alibaba. And we have listened to a lot of people like Kyle Bass and others who basically say that China is uninvestable because of the interference of the Chinese Communist Party. So can you enlighten us on your thinking and the Alibaba position? I should have listened to, to Kyle Bass. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we did some culling in the portfolio of some tax law selling um, in the last couple of weeks. And and Alibaba was one of those names where we just got it wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, when look, re-looking at the position and I mean, I show up every day and I say, do I want to own this stock today? Like I wanted to own it yesterday. And then after doing some further analysis, going through the last quarter, seeing what's happening in the advertising trend, as well as, you know, the macro obviously had some degree of impact, but it was much more at the, at the company specific level. We we're looking at um, looking at kind of where we were relative to our cost basis. Um, you know, we don't manage the portfolio from a, from, you know, on a tax 
efficiency basis, but we are aware of it. So to the extent where we can kind of go in and because we had taken some profits where there had been in the energy sector, material sector and others, you know, this year, we felt it was a good opportunity to basically, um, you know, try to take some losses in the portfolio that would offset some of the gains so that we could be relatively efficient with regard to capital, um, um, you know, capital and, and, and tax strategies with the fund. And, um, you know, Baba was one of those names that we went back and re-examined our positions with an even finer or high velocity microscope. You know, this time it was one that, uh, you know, we always recognize that, uh, you know, we, we do make mistakes. We're not infallible. The key thing is to, you know, get a few more things right than you get wrong, but don't let the mistakes kill you. So to the extent where we had, you know, a modest uh, loss from what our entry position was in Baba and the lack of uh, what we thought was a catalyst to turn it around. Um, we took some tax loss selling in Alibaba and I probably should have listened to Kyle Bass before I entered the position uh, two or three months ago when I thought I was buying at the bottom. Uh, one positive note, I I'd like to hear your comment uh, is your, uh, you, you got it right big time on EQT and they're one of the biggest natural gas producers in the country. It's a great family business story. And the CEO was on CNBC last week complaining that uh, we can pump more and more and more and help a lot more people if we just had more pipeline capacity. Any comments there? No, I think the Rices have done a great job, you know, when they kind of sold the business and then it was mismanaged and they've come back in, taken over their, their leadership and management of that business. EQT is the the largest producer of natural gas in the country. Um, we see it with some of our pipeline holdings and the infrastructure fund in particular with uh, Williams and, and, and Kinder Morgan and others. Um, it um, and, and when the Freeport facility went uh, had an accident, we saw basically, you know, the dependence that we are on just very few facilities, essentially. And when you just look at, you know, domestic pipelines, um, you know, Massachusetts, you know, which doesn't allow any type of, um, you know, natural gas pipelines coming in to be built in the last I can't remember. Um, you know, they burn more, you know, heating oil than uh, than anywhere else, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a per capita basis. So, you know, all the, the you know, let's call them idealistic, uh, you know, ESG policies, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, they backfire because they end up burning, uh, you know, firewood, uh, which is, you know, medieval almost, and, you know, heating oil, um, rather than using cleaner burning natural gas. So, I mean, tell your eyes is straight on on that, but I mean... The reality is with the with the situations that we have in most of the blue states and at, in particular at the national at the national government level, um, this pipeline shortage is is not going to get remedied anytime soon. Uh, and to the extent where it does get uh, kind of expanded or uh, permitting is allowed, it's all going to be towards uh, LNG facilities so that we can take advantage of the opportunity to export LNG to Europe rather than to, uh, you know, heat our own homes here in the United States, which is uh, kind of crazy. And, and Toby Rice is 100 percent right on that. Yeah. So in closing, uh, from my, my view, uh, do you have any comments on ESG? Uh, investing and overlay. Do you guys look at that? Uh, there's a lot out there now that it's basically nothing but a scam. Elon Musk has, in fact, called it that. 
Uh, we're just curious about your firm's positioning or perspective on ESG. It's like tax efficiency within the portfolio. We're aware of it, but it's definitely not part of our um, uh, explicit mandate within the prospectus. I mean, we obviously want to find companies that are good stewards of their resources. Um, you know, the real question is, you know, it, all this, if you're a good steward of your assets, um, it will manifest itself in better returns on capital, better profitability, better employee retention. Those are the things that we, you know, those are natural attributes that we want to gravitate towards. But, you know, people have to remember that the, the, the uh, you know, with regard to, to, to um, you know, wind and solar, uh, I think I've shared with you guys, I'm a gentleman farmer on the weekends. Uh, I took the opportunity a couple of years ago to put up a turbine, a wind turbine on my property. I use it just to generate power for a few, you know, basic uh, things uh, that, that assist me. But, um, you know, where I live in New Jersey and I'm on a very high area and, you know, usually if we get some exceptional winds, I can tell you for the last six to eight weeks prior to, uh, uh, you know, this recent storm that we've had, I mean, the turbine barely moved. I mean, the propellers just, barely, you know, never spun and it was getting almost no power. Um, so, you know, to me, it's a very micro, uh, you know, indicator, but it tells you that, you know, the reliance that we're putting on, um, you know, renewable sources, in particularly in the absence of kind of storage facilities that can take advantage of of the intermittency of, of uh, you know, cloudy days and no wind and so forth is something that, um, you know, the idealistic goals just don't match reality. I think balance and balance, you know, you can make that argument about everything in life. I think balance um, is, is the most important thing. And I think Unfortunately, you know, what what we talked about before with regard to um, demand destruction is actually also uh, curtailing supply increases in the very things that we're going to need. And, uh, you know, to the extent that ESG overlays, you know, will further kind of depress capital spending and pipelines in E&P and, uh, you know, other things. Um, in essence, what we're doing is we're, we're kind of we're kind of, uh, you know, locking ourselves into a higher inflationary environment. All of these things are related. Um, and it's very important for people to have a holistic view of this. And, um, you know, I think the experience of kind of living a, a real life where you actually see these things like I try to do, uh, you know, um, you know, tells you that, uh, you know, there, there are problems with this in trying to, you know, force it across, you know, a, almost a, a global kind of uh, constituency. Well, Ken, thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to turn it back to Todd Zimple uh, to wrap it up. James, great talking with you once again. And thanks for the update and all the great insight on the fund and your views uh, globally about things macro. My pleasure. Well, James, thanks again for your time. We always appreciate your insight. And if you would like to learn more about James Abate or the funds he manages, you can check out their website, centerfunds.com, the C-E-N-T-R-E funds.com. That'll do it for today, folks. Thank you and have a great week. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click subscribe. Gordon Asset Management LLC is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit wealthqb.com. The information in this podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Gordon Asset Management LLC, its producers, hosts, or guests. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Gordon Asset Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.